Thank you. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Anybody know what chapter we're in? Somebody said six? (laughs) Three, thank you. (laughs) It was me whispering six. I was just trying to throw you off. (laughs) We're going to be in verses 1 through 11. Let me read this passage for you. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I am more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of God, brothers and sisters. 1980, I was brand new in Washington, D.C., just married my wife, Kelly. Uh, we were trying to get on our feet, and I was working in fast food. You know how much fun that is. Yeah, the... Uh, I had a friend came to me. We just got out of training. We had a little training bonus. It wasn't a whole lot. And he said, hey, you know what we ought to do? And I said, what? He said, we ought to invest that bonus. And I went, yeah, we should do that. What do you do with it? How do you do? How do you invest? What do I know? <laughs> you know? He said, well, you buy stock. And I said, okay. He said, we put ours together. I've got a broker. We need to put together $2,000. Can you put together $1,000? I said, gee, I don't know. That's a lot of money. He said, that's okay, you know, we'll get it together, and we're going to buy this new company called Apple. I went, what is Apple? <laughs> I thought it was the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, he said, no, they make computers. No, I was an early adapter on computers. I was pretty excited about them. I knew where we were going with it. We all knew, you know, anybody who got in early on, on computers knew that they were going to be huge. I thought, I don't know, you know. It, it would be the whole, the whole bonus that we got, plus some more. I'm trying to get an apartment. We're trying to get settled. And, you know, there, there's just no guarantee that this investment is going to turn any money. And he said, oh, it's a sure bet. And I, I just ran for my life as soon as he said, sure bet. You know, so the, the question is, how do we know? How do we know if we're making a good investment? What tools do we have that would tell us that investment is good and reliable and will give us some kind of return 
on what we invest? Well, I think today's passage is going to give us a few answers on that. Paul's letter to the Philippians has covered a lot of ground in the first two chapters. He's in prison, probably going to be executed, almost sure that it's coming, just because he's a Christian. And the church that he started, the first church that he started in Macedonia, is small, but they're incredibly powerful. They're also facing some very imposing challenges. They're, they're in a rough environment. There are people with bad motives in the church. Everybody says gasp, okay? There are itinerant teachers uh, who are working against Paul. And worse yet, the church is trying to grow in this incredibly hostile environment in Philippi. So, still, Paul's been encouraging them. He's been blessing them. He's remarked how important it is to learn how to live for Christ He's taught them how to use suffering and trials as an opportunity to share the gospel, their gospel opportunities. And he's also shared that humility is an attribute that Christ had and an attribute that followers of Christ should express at the same time. So in the last half of chapter 2, he gave two examples of how all this works in real life, in the lives of two young men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, Paul's going to get personal. He's going to begin to teach out of uh, the lessons he's learning in his situation and through this whole affair in Philippi. And this sermon is called The Loss of All Things. You know, that's our, our series. We're, we're right here at what I believe to be one of the main themes of the book of Philippians is how much do you give up to be a Christian? Now, that, that's really not a popular message today. Somebody say amen, okay? Because we're all told that we become Christians to get things. We're going to have this. We're going to have that. You know, we're going to have peace. We're going to have blessing. We're going to have, you know, some will teach you you're going to have material things for becoming a Christian. This is not what Paul's saying. Matter of fact, Paul's saying, look out, this is going to be a rough walk. This is not easy. You might have to give up a lot of things that are dear to you in order to walk the walk that we've been called to walk. So the, the, the name of our sermon is the loss of all things. And I use that name just to encourage people to come to church. <laughs> uh, and so that's the name of our sermon today as well. So we're going to see three observations that Paul has. We're going to see corruption, corruption in the church in verses one through three. We're going to see the cost of being a Christian in verses 4 through 8, and we'll see a crown in verses 9 through 11. So let's take a look at this corruption that Paul's talking about in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. We're just saying that. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, this is an idiom of the day. An idiom is a common saying. Everybody who heard this would have understood what Paul is doing. Theologians has given a name to this idiom. It's called an epistolary hesitation. Don't write that down. What Paul's saying is, I don't hesitate to remind you because this is for your own welfare. I'm not worried about bringing this up to you because you need to hear this, because you can grow from this. So in the previous chapter, Paul has encouraged the Philippians to follow good examples. He says, welcome these good examples. Honor them. Rejoice in the Lord with them. Uh, it's a triplet of positive actions to take 
when they're following good and godly leaders. So now he offers a triplet of another kind. Here comes the balance of this. Three kinds of people who should be avoided. In verse 2 he says, look out, look out for the dogs. Now it's an interesting thing about first century perceptions because in the first century dogs were not cuddly, huggable companions that you bring into your house. They were filthy they were, they, were, uh, they were ugly. They were despised as being filthy, mostly because they would eat anything, even their own vomit. Uh, so they were incapable of staying clean in a culture that cherished cleanliness and godliness. So Jewish people had a tendency to call their enemies dogs. Why? Because they didn't practice the cleansing rituals that the Jewish people uh, practice. So it, 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 Paul says, look out for these folks. They really aren't on the same plane as you. They really don't believe the same things that you believe. He says, look out for the evildoers. Look out for folks that are not godly, uh, folks who rebel against God, folks who are doing things that are contrary to what your scriptures say. And then he says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, we need to be careful with this one. Uh, because we, you know, we, we see people today walking around with tattoos and piercings and, you know, I've always got somebody coming, Oh, did you see that person has piercings and tattoos? You know, they're going to hell. They've got a flower on their arm, (laughs) you know? So this is not what this is about. And when the, the scripture talks about tattoos and piercings, they're not talking about anybody that has an earring or has a small tattoo somewhere. They're talking about people that have taken on these things in worship to false gods. They are signs of that I am committed to a God other than the one true God. So when they talk about mutilating the flesh, we've got to be careful that we're not judging somebody uh, that is being held to a first century standard and applying a 21st century standard to it. So Paul is saying, watch out. Don't, don't follow these evil people, the evildoers, the, the, the unclean people, uh, the people that are worshiping other gods. And he's warning them three times against a particular group of people. So who are these people? Well, we've kind of seen a lot of of, of, uh, samples of this and hints of this coming up. In chapter 1, verse 15, we found that some preachers are motivated by selfish rivalry. Philippians 1.15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. We read in verse 27 of chapter 1 that some of these guys are threatening the unity that the church is supposed to have. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. There are people that are standing against their unity. We know there are, some folks are truly humble, but we also have found out that there, there are those who are filled with what Paul calls selfish ambition. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. He's saying, well, well look out there, are those among you that are doing this. So Paul's mentioned that there's a difference between the children of God and the warped and twisted generation that they live in. Philippians 2, 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's worthy of repeating, isn't it? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
Yeah, don't argue, don't complain. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So, kind of an important passage. We're called to be a light to this generation, not those who are condemning them. Paul says here in chapter 3, watch out for these types of people. Be careful. They're in the church, and they're dangerous. And what we see is that corruption is beginning to sneak into the church, even here in the first half of the first century. And Paul, Paul knows this is true. He's going through it. He's become the victim of these types of people. They're, they're on him. He's in prison, and these people are out there taking advantage of that. He's seen how corruption can enter the church and cause pain and distress for the true members of the church. Paul says true Christians should be different. Paul says that true Christians should be different from these types. Listen, Philippians 3.3. 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I just want you to hear that. Put no confidence in the flesh. I've stood here dozens of times and said that we watch TV, we watch the news, we read news articles, we watch videos and everything. All people telling us what to be mad about. What to be upset about? We've got to do something about this. We've got to go out there, and we're going to protest, and we're going to march, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And we put confidence where? In the flesh. How many times is the church going to rise up and go, if we just get behind this guy here, everything's going to be fine? Has it worked yet? Not that I can see. (laughs) Things keep getting worse. And we, we who are called to be the light of the world, engage in the darkness. God's not going to condemn me for that. He's not going to condemn me for getting angry over it because I'm not supposed to be angry. Amen. I repent. We're not going to be able to walk in the fullness of his blessing. We're not going to do exactly what he tells us not to do and then expect him to bless us. The church should be united in spirit, dependent upon God, not on worldly ways, working together for the glory of God, walking away from the corruption that's in the church and in the world as well by the power of the spirit living inside of us. So we avoid the corruption. We get it. And we live in Christ, amen. That sounds nice, doesn't it? It's okay to say yes. Maybe you don't think it sounds nice, I don't know. (laughs) There's a cost. There's a cost associated with making that decision. There's a cost associated with deciding to be the light of the world rather than engaging in the darkness. There's a cost involved in following Christ instead of following the world. That's Paul's second observation, starting in verse 4. Though I myself, he says, have reason for confidence in the flesh. 
Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Now, let me give you the Kavakis paraphrase here. Paul's saying, if anyone has had the opportunity to live in the flesh, to indulge in everything that the world has offered, it was me. If anybody's had an opportunity to live in a self-centered fashion, it is me, he says. In verse 5, he tells why, what qualifies him for that. Circumcised on the eighth day, a true Jew, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Wow. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. No, make no mistake what he's saying here. As to the law, he's a Pharisee. He's of that sect. Uh, he was zealously persecuting the church. And as far as the Pharisees were able to, to interpret the law, he was righteous. He was blameless. And those, those are Paul's earthly credentials. Those are his accomplishments. And, and you know something? They're impressive. And I've mentioned this before. Paul was a rising superstar of the Sanhedrin. He had it all. When he walked through town, people would point to him. Mothers would lean down to their children and go, don't you want to be like Paul when you grow up? Look at his robes. They're fantastic. Look how famous he is. Look at the respect he has of all the people around him. You know, it's hard for us to understand this, but back in that day, the Pharisees, nobody saw them walking down the street and go, oh, what a bunch of vipers. What a bunch of evil people. They should be fleeing from the corruption. And they didn't see that. What they saw was holy people. Why? Because they stood up and told everybody they were holy. <laughs> they stood up and they said, look, we got the temple, we got the law, we know how everything works, you need to do what we say, not what we do. And if you do that, then you'll be blessed like we are. Oh, that's, that's a new message, isn't it? Somebody standing up and saying, if you do what I tell you to do, you'll be blessed like I am? That would never occur in the church today, would it? They were well-respected. And of all those that were well-respected, Paul was one of the most respected. And just to, show you, just to show you what kind of guy he was, we have to look no further than Acts chapter 8, where we see Paul. He's there with a crowd of people, of angry Jews, led by the religious leaders of the day, listening to Stephen preached this sermon, and right after the sermon, they dragged him out of town and stoned him to death. Why? Because Stephen reminded them that they've been sinners for generations. There were three pillars to Stephen's sermon. He talked about the law. He said, you didn't obey it. He talked about Moses. He said, you didn't like him. He talked about the temple. He goes, you think God lives in that house? They got so mad, they killed him. And Paul was there as a young man overseeing the whole thing. They're laying their coats at his feet. And here's what Acts says about Paul being there at the stoning of Stephen. And Saul, Saul approved of his execution. So later, Saul, now some people think Saul had his name changed to Paul. That's not what happened. Saul, Jewish, Paul, Roman, both names are appropriate. Later, Saul, Paul, would begin 
hunting Christians, throwing them in jail, setting them up for execution, sealing his popularity with the religious establishment. Before his encounter with Christ, Paul was on his way to fame. He was on his way to riches, status, esteem, influence. He was doing all the things that he accuses these three groups of people of doing right here in this letter to the Philippians. And, and on top of that, he was gaining respect and admiration for doing it. Now, yeah, you know, we should see in here a caution to avoid following someone just because they're popular. Yeah, so, oh, have you seen this guy teach? He's got a bestseller on the New York Times bestselling book list. That's the first sign of trouble as far as I'm concerned. Every teaching we hear, everyone we follow should be put to the test of Scripture. We should be evaluating them according to what our Bibles say. Put to the test of Jesus Christ. How did Jesus respond to the people around him? What did Jesus teach? How did Jesus walk? What were the fruits of Jesus' ministry? The fruits of Paul's ministry before Christ were anger, bitterness, and division, and sometimes death. The easy path to popularity and influence is to appeal to what Paul calls the flesh, to tickle people's ears, tell them what they want to hear. Paul could have done that. As a matter of fact, he was expected to, almost demanded. But he turned his back on all that. He gave it all up. He walked away from everything he'd been working for. And what we see is Paul being transformed. Paul going through a change. And now, now that Paul is with Christ, he has a new life. We hear a lot about new life in Christ. This is it. This is it right here. Yeah, it, it, it's not a remedy to all of our problems. It's not the, the, the magic key that unlocks all of the blessings of the world. It is the unity. It's the peace. It's the joy that you have, even in the circumstances when they surround you and look like doom, that you can find peace, that you can find rest. So he has this new life, and he found it by being one with Christ, and this new life is so much more satisfying to the theologian of theologians that he now says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Gave it all up to follow Christ. And he counts everything that he had achieved before, not as a reward, but as a loss. The word here actually conveys the idea of damage. In other words, the esteem, the popularity, the material things that go with it all, Paul now sees as hindrances. They were damaging him. They were hurting him. They were holding him back. So in verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. That sounds devastating, doesn't it? I mean, just think where you are right now. This process I've been going through since I started reading this letter. What if I lost 
everything. I would be devastated. What does Paul say? I did that. I live out on the road. I'm so intense together. <laughs> I could have had the mansion. I could have had everything. I gave it up for, the, for, for Christ. And now I count the loss of all things as rubbish. Whoa. Jews would hear, I count the loss of all things as filth, excrement, waste, worthless. All Paul had before Christ amounts to less than nothing, he said in order that I may gain Christ. He's given up everything in order to be one with Christ. The cost is absolutely enormous, maybe unimaginable. But as unimaginable as it may be, the blessings are even greater. Can you imagine that? Paul explains why this is so, and and this is where we see his third observation, the crown. Verse 9 is a continuation of verse 8. So I count them as rubbish and be found in him. Very careful choice of the words here. He's drawing a parallel. He's the same word for found that he used when in chapter 2, verse 8, when he's describing Christ emptying himself. Uh, verse 8 in chapter 2 says, and Christ and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here in chapter 3, Paul is saying that the way to gain Christ is to do what Jesus did. He just described it. Consciously empty yourself, even to the point of death. Christ was found in a human form. Now, Paul wants to be found in Christ by doing what Christ did. Paul's confident that he can be found in Christ, not because of his considerable achievements, not because of all of the credentials that he had, but because of what Christ has done. And and as we look in this a little bit closer, and Paul reveals his heart of hearts, we, we see the keys to Paul's humility. Where does that humility come from? Somebody who was so elevated, somebody was, who was so well-respected. He says, not having, he's talking about himself, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul knows, Paul knows that his transformation from a man filled with bitterness and hate into a man who loves the Lord, a man who is forgiving, a man who is merciful, totally committed to the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Paul, came not from anything that he did, but from what Christ did. Do you understand that? That everything that we have in our faith, everything that we believe, the new life that we have, the new heart that's being created in us comes from the same place that all those things in Paul came from, not because we're great people, not because we were able to analyze the situation and make the right decision, but solely because of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross and were conveyed to us by the grace of God. We didn't conjure it up. We couldn't. You know why? We were dead. 
I was alive enough to figure it out. It's not what the scripture says. Paul knows this. Paul's salvation and eternal destiny are sealed not by how well he does as a Christian, not by how good a job he does in planting churches, but they're sealed by the righteousness of Christ, not by Paul's righteousness. This is a new righteousness, and it comes through faith. And if we're willing to take a look at the book of Romans objectively, we'll find out that even the faith that we have that gives us access to that righteousness is a gift. It's a gift from God, a gift of grace. Paul hasn't earned it. He's acutely aware of the fact that he's not worthy of it. He knew what he was. Everything he has of any eternal value has been granted to him by God. I want you to think about that word for a minute. Granted to him by God. God's not looking at the crowd and going, there's a smart one, I'll take him. God's not giving people options, letting them exercise them. God is granting salvation, granting the faith that leads to righteousness. And even the righteousness that God grants is not ours. It's Christ. We'll talk about that someday, the difference of imputation and impartation, but that's for another discussion. Why does God do this? Verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him even in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's saying, I'll do anything I can to hold on to this, including giving up everything. Every moment of every day that Paul lives, is undergirded, characterized by the last day of all days, by judgment day, amen? He lives his life today in light of judgment day, not in light of the circumstances around him, not in light of his situation, not in light of who's hurt him, who supported him, but in light of there's going to be a final day. And he looks forward. He looks forward to that moment because he says, There's a crown he's going to wear. And when that day comes, that crown of perfect, untainted righteousness and holiness lands on Paul's head, as it will each one of us. Paul understands that he didn't get it because of who he is, but because of who Christ is. Holy because it belongs to Christ. And Paul is united with him. We've been talking about union with Christ throughout this letter. Now, if we understand that fully, it will change everything. Paul's expressing that right here. So we've seen these three observations that Paul's had. We've seen the corruption. Paul's seen the ugly underbelly of the church, but he still rejoices. Why? Why why does he do that? How, How does he do that? Because he knows that God sits in authority over not just the church, but over everything. And God has already determined how all this ends. All you got to do is read the end of the book. You'll see. Everybody wants to get about, oh, we, we need to go through Revelation. We need to figure out all these things. And, and let me tell you about the book of Revelation. I'm going to preach the whole thing right now. Jesus wins. Okay. I don't know about the bowls and the lamps and 
Uh, I've read it all. It, it's fascinating reading, okay? But whatever is going to happen is so far beyond my understanding of the world and physics and so on and so forth that all I want to do is watch. Go, oh, so that was that. Ooh, look at that over there. Who thought that? Okay, but we've got Genesis where God makes his beautiful garden and the people get themselves kicked out of it. Bad decision. And the rest of the book is God bringing him back to the garden and saying, the, re- the, the way you, you, you got yourself kicked out of the garden, but my son gets you into the new garden. <laughs> okay? And this is how it all ends. And, and all, all we need to do to be there in the new creation is to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and repent from our sins. All the other stuff is, is great stuff. You know, I, I love the doctrine and theology and everything, but the way you get into heaven is through repentance and confession. And, and, and God says, if you do that, then I've got a home for you. And my son's going to come back and take you there. So there it is right there. God is in authority over everything. He's determined how it ends. And the way it ends is with peace and joy for those who are in his family. Paul's able to do this. He's able to understand this and able to react and rejoice over his situation by keeping his focus on Christ and not on his circumstances, not on those things that are happening around him. We've seen the cost. The cost of being a faithful follower of Christ is everything. Sounds like a lot. But there's a sweet irony to this if we understand What's happening when we're, when we're called on to give up everything? You surrender everything you have. You surrender everything you have to get everything Christ has. What does Christ have? Everything. Everything. You want blessing. You want peace. You want joy. It's found in unity with Christ. So what Paul's saying is give up your hopes and dreams, lay them on the altar in front of your Lord Jesus Christ, and get everything he has, which is so far beyond your imagination. This is just going to blow your mind when you see it. I think when John gets that peak into heaven, that was his first thought. He said, I need a 21st century idiom here because this is blowing my mind (laughs) and i'm going to write everything down that i see you guys are going to have to figure out what it means so far beyond his experience it was almost indescribable that's us that's what we're going to experience and for that we're guaranteed a crown crown of glory worn on the last day paul strives to live today as if it were that last day. He's wonderfully aware of his shortcoming. In Romans 7, he calls himself wretched. Paul is also aware that he's been saved by grace, sealed by a righteousness that is not his own, destined for glory. He wants to live today as if all that's true, as if he can grab hold of it. So he's given up all his worldly goals, his possessions, his positions, his honor, and traded him for eternal ones. Incredible. Did he see this coming? 
Yeah. I mean, he didn't see Christ coming. Christ had to put scales on his eyes so he couldn't see, and then somebody to take the scales off so that he could see a bit more clearly. He saw it coming. He counted the cost. He found the benefits to exceed the cost. Paul suffered the loss of all things to gain Christ and eternity forever. That was Paul's investment. He invested in forever. I had no idea what would happen to the cost of Apple stock. <laughs> My $1,000, if I had invested it back in 1980, would come out to about $1.3 million today without even touching it. But there's, there's no guarantee that that's going to happen. You can't just pick a random stock and say, well, if I just hold on to this for the next 40 years, I'll be a millionaire. See, Paul wants us to invest everything to gain Christ. Now, how do we know? How do we know that that investment is valid? How do we know there's a guarantee with that investment? Well, you know, if I'm looking for Apple stock, I can pick up the Wall Street Journal. Amen? And they're usually pretty good, but even those guys drop the ball every now and then. Even now and then, they're fallible. But if I want to invest in my eternal stock, I want to go to something that is infallible. Amen? Uh, and so I've got the Bible, which for 6,000 years has been infallible. And it tells me that there's a guarantee on my investment and the promise of eternal returns on it. As I give God everything, he gives me everything. That's available to all of us who call upon him as Lord and Savior. And it's worth, it's worth expressing some urgency to tell other people about him. Christ made this sacrifice so that people could live with him forever. This is why we do Operation Christmas Child. It's why we affect all of the ministries that we're involved in. It's why we go out into the community when we have the opportunity to do it, because we want to show them. We want to show them that being a follower of Christ makes a difference. Who knew that a little girl in Central Africa needed a blanket to come to Christ? Only God can do that. Girl's praying for a blanket, probably doesn't even know who she's praying to. And some strange person gives her this box. And she opens it up, and there's a blanket there. She runs home, says, Mom, a blanket. And the mother goes, where'd you get that? Because they don't have blankets. <laughs> where'd you get that? This man gave it to me, and they told me about Jesus Christ. He told me Christ gave me the blanket. That's our job, to show everybody that we're set apart. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the honor of being your messengers. We give you thanks for this message of untainted righteousness that is counted to us, Father, but doesn't become ours. Oh, we give you thanks it doesn't become ours because if it did, we would taint it right away and be in a hopeless situation. We thank you that the righteousness stays with Christ who is holy and perfect forevermore and that we can count on that, Father that our investment in the kingdom of God 
would bring eternal benefits, Father. Not that we're after the benefits, but because we're after you. Father, we pray that we might experience your wholeness, your blessing, your peace, and your joy, and be messengers of all of those things that you've given us. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm going to ask you to stand. Bow your head. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We all say, amen, amen. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in, those who are online. Next week, we have Elder David Algren is going to be preaching out of Ephesians chapter 1. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Thank you. If anybody wants to talk to me, I'll be standing right over here. Mm.